Dúchut, good morning, agus fóilsistach playback. And on this week's show, reaction to the death of Ian Bailey, the brother of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier speaks to Drive Time. Well, Bailey is dead. That means that we will never know the truth of what happened to my sister, and the shock was great. Toy Show the Musical, or T Chair Shuni Rahali, responds to the report. This is why we have put certain things in place to ensure that such an event would not happen again. And Killian Murphy gets an Oscar nomination. His former teacher talks to Ray. Cork is celebrating quietly here. It's not so much that we are shocked by it. We kind of feel both we and Killian deserved an Oscar years ago, you know. But first, next Thursday, from the 1st of February, a new shopping experience awaits in what has been billed as the biggest environmental behaviour change here since the plastic bag levy. So when you buy a drink in a plastic bottle or a can with the return logo on it, you'll pay a deposit of between 15 and 25 cent at the till and then... Then, when you bring your empty, undamaged container back to any shop, you'll get that deposit returned. We heard on the programme on Friday just a third of retailers have signed up to the scheme. So we have the CEO of Return, Kieran Foley, back with us here in the studio. Kieran, you're very welcome. And it would appear that a lot, a lot of people are looking for a lot, a lot of clarity, from the small shop owners to customers who rely on deliveries. They all raise the issue of the costs involved for the retailers. It's a significant outlay. Like you've got the unit, which is around 11,000, isn't it, to to put in. Are you worried about that, that a lot of retailers aren't buying into this, the smaller ones in particular? No, our our numbers are probably ahead of where we expected. And they're definitely ahead of any other European scheme at this stage. So we're going to have 1,850 OVMs live on February the 1st. And included in that is hundreds of smaller retailers who could have taken an exemption, but have decided to take an OVM. So the reality is... That's the machine. Yeah, the reverse vending machine. Sorry, yeah. The reality is we've done our feasibility study. It's been independently verified. We've got some of the, the best handling fees on offer in Europe and we've got grants available. Do we know it's going to be enough? As I said, the initial take-up makes us feel positive about that. But we haven't even gone live yet. So, you know, we think the handling fees are right. We think the grants are about right. Once we go live, we'll keep everything under review. I'm mm-hmm. constantly talking to the smaller retailers. We, we know them very well and we are listening. And at the end of the day, we're here to increase recycling. That's all we want to do. So if we need to do more post-go live, then obviously we, we'd have a look at that. Then on Thursday, Joe Duffy's live line lit up with more callers. This new scheme next week. Every bottle and can of product is going up by at least 15 cents per bottle and uh, possibly 25 cents. His callers were, I think wary is a fair term of this new initiative. Kiva Kavanagh. Hi Joe, how are you? I know you well and you're Kavanagh yeah. coaches. You're brilliant, you're brilliant, you're brilliant at your job. Yeah, with yeah. Joe, we okay. have a petrol station here in okay. Erlingford. Um, we were small enough that we could have got the exemption, but we decided after long discussions with, with okay. management here that we would go ahead with the, the system. Um, our main issue is that we we're halfway between Dublin and Cork. When they by the time they get to our forecourt, their their rubbish is empty and they drop rubbish with us. Our rubbish volumes are astronomical. Okay. So we we went ahead with this scheme hoping that it would reduce our, our rubbish. And coffee, coffee, I mean, coffee we, cups are a killer. Nothing has been done and, about and it's, that. It's a type of rubbish that wasn't here 20 years ago. Yeah. We'd have a full 1,100 litre wheelie bin every week of just coffee cups. We will get 2.2 cents for yeah. every bottle 
or can that we accept. If you get under 250,000 cans in the first year, the wow. government is going to give the retailer a grant of 3,000. Okay. The second year it's in operation, if you've under 250,000, you will get 2,000 euros. And the third year, you will get 1,000 euros. So that's a maximum of 6,000 euros available, which is less than 50% of the cost of mm. purchasing the machine. Is anybody happy with this new scheme? In my opinion, anyone who buys bottled water, and I'm going to say this bluntly, is an idiot. Water comes out of a tap yeah. and it's perfectly usable water. No, Ron, say that to the people in Belmullet last week. Right, fine. It's That's one example. I have never bought a can in my life. Okay. I'm 70. I can stand over that statement. If I had my way, I wouldn't have 15 cents on them. I'd tax them to death. Okay. Now, if there's anything wrong with this proposal... It is not good enough. Okay. I put my can in the recycling bin. And do you think? Do you think generally you, you're good? We have become better on recycling. A hundred percent better. Yeah. This is this is off the wall. But why not give everybody a pink bin or a blue bin, and it's collected every two months? That's the end of it. Instead you, of all this absolute nonsense. Yeah, no, Joe, we're, we're all for the recycling, course, but, you know, yeah. and that make, it, make it, a, it a little bit easier for us. I, I'm getting very frustrated listening to this because people are doing their best with all these eco things coming in, and it's getting yeah. very frustrating. As you say, we have green bins, we use them. Like, what's the problem with continuing to use them? All, of course, will become clear over the coming weeks, but in the meantime, other subjects hit the headlines. We're going to talk about RTE now because a damning report into RTE's Toy Show the Musical project has found it was never formally approved by the board. The Grant Thornton report reports that um, the project overstated commercial revenue by €75,000. RTE's Director General Kevin Backress has said some of its contents are shocking and should never have happened. Neve Smith is chair of the Committee on uh, Media, the Eructus Committee on Media, and Seamus Dooley is chair of the NUJ, and they both join me now. You're both very welcome to the programme. It is alarming, but sadly not surprising, having considered um, the RTE debacles over the last number of months. And it kind of further points to that lack of oversight, lack of governance, lack of control, and a real complacency really with the executive in what information they should be sharing and looking for the approval from for the board. Considering there's more reports to come out, the barter account report has to come out yet too, uh, which is going to, I suppose, demonstrate to us whether this was a regular occurrence or not. And this is against a backdrop where the government are being asked to consider future funding of Mm -hmm. the media. It certainly is very unhelpful during all of that debate. This report is the latest instalment in you know, it's about Toy Show the Musical, but it's really about a farce. It doesn't come as a surprise to me. My concern in relation to this report, I should say for sake of completeness, that I had a meeting today as part of a trade union group at her invitation with the current chair. Junior Rally. With Junior Rally. I made the point to her, and I would make it here again, that this report is un helpful because it does not name individuals. So everyone is allocated a number. So we don't know who these people were. The real issue here is the protection of public service broadcasting and what I don't want is members of Neve's committee or members of the public accounts or cabinet members to use this as an excuse for not dealing with the urgent issue of public service financing. This is another fine mess, but we can't unring this bell. Or Chair Shuni Rahala spoke on the news at one. 
So again, I, I would like to reiterate the apology to the public and to the staff in RTE in relation to this. And I want to assure assure everybody of the work that we have been doing to make sure that something like this never happens again. And I think we have done that. Um, this report, as you say, was commissioned by the uh, Audit and Risk Committee of the Board to look into the facts surrounding uh, the debacle that, is, that was Toy Show the Musical. And it is a factual report. It's an independent report. Was this a project that should have gone for authorisation before the Board? And the answer to that is yes. Did it go for formal uh, approval of the Board? And the answer to that is no. And then on Friday morning, the Minister, Catherine Martin, discussed the report with Rachel English on Morning Ireland. Although the report doesn't reveal any names, several of the board's members who were interviewed for it admitted that more questions should have been asked. Five members of that board are still in place and the Minister joins us now on the line. Good morning. So so given all of that then, why should the five board members, why should they stay on the board now? I believe for accountability is, and I have heard many, many members of the Oireachtas uh, committees um, who've done invaluable work in, in, in relation to the, to the crisis since it has emerged in June, um, say they want accountability. If I remove the board members, firstly, that accountability is gone because there, there's no onus on, on members if they're removed to attend. But also, I believe RTE is at a really critical time in relation to the development of its strategic vision, in relation to building public trust. And I believe it's in the best interest of, of the staff and the organisation as, as a whole and in recognition of the significant change we have seen take place and that is, that is ongoing. But another story that has filled the airwaves many times was back in focus this week with the news that the chief suspect in the murder of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier, Ian Bailey, has died. Joining Cormac on Drive Time on Tuesday was Sophie's brother, Bertrand Bouniot, where he explained how the family had found out the news through the media and calls from Cove. It was a shock for me and my family uh, to listen to this, this news. We, we were not uh, ready to, to have this. Once we have uh, understood what, what happened, it was to, to say what will be the next step after this death. And uh, we were talking together uh, to imagine uh, what will be the future of this, uh, this case. Well, Belay is dead. That means that we will never know and it was a shock for us uh, to uh, to listen this uh, this news. Mm-hmm. And I know the pain of this never goes away for you and your family. Um, how, how did your parents react? Uh, well, when I talked to to them and we discussed together with my brother, my uh, nephew, and all our family and my parents, that was to say, okay, uh, that means that we will never know the details, the truth of uh, what happened to my to my sister. And the shock was great. The question after was, okay, what will be the future? Do the, uh, the Irish uh, Garda will continue uh, its uh, investigation uh, or not? Do they, the new uh, witness, uh, will be uh, ready to speak again because they will not be afraid anymore of, uh, of Belize? Uh, that is the question that we have together. Mm-hmm. How do you learn about Ian? Ian Bailey's death. Did you? Did anyone from Angora Shikona contact the family, or did did you learn through well, the media? Yes, through the media. For me, uh, I, I, I receive information from the media, and especially when when I receive call phone call from three five three. That means uh, information coming from Ireland. I, I'll have a look to the uh, to my phone to have the news and to have, to know what happened, and that's uh, how we we receive the information. 
I'm war massum on Susbilga Hogol. Bame to rush, a young couple of nomad. Ford to rush, good playback. January. It's the crack, isn't it? Yes, it is another Monday in January of 2024. It's the fourth Monday of this month and there's another one yet to come. It's a long old month, is January, yes. And we're in the middle of the post-Christmas blues and it's dark and it's dank and raining and it's windy and it's snowing and it's freezing. Ray Darcy's opening monologue there on Monday and he's right, the month seems never-ending. And just when you want to hide away from unwanted visitors this week, Jocelyn and Isha came to call. And there's also another storm coming. Orange warning. So storm Jocelyn to bring strong southwest to west winds with severe and damaging gusts. All of this after the damaging effects of storm Isha overnight. Later that day, John Cook donned his wellies for drive time as thousands of households and businesses lost power across the country. Hence you're in a rain-soaked field and the, the three power lines going across land, two poles and this steel structure across to see it falling down. How dangerous could that be? Very dangerous actually the way it is left at the moment so we hope to get it fixed as quick as we can. So there's a lot of people out at the moment so everyone now is actually pushing and trying to get it done as quick as they can. Matt, uh, tell me about what happened here in Carnmore. Yeah, well, what happened here, as you can see, one of the poles broke. This is a, a 110 kV yeah, transmission line. It happened yesterday evening in the middle of the, the red alert in Galway. So as you can see, one of the conductors dropped down. It's beside a road crossing, so it's potentially quite dangerous here. And we don't know what damage is on the actual conductor itself, so it could, it could snap at any time. But of course, when it's all a bit grim, we run towards the light. And this news cheered us up. Killian Murphy has been nominated for the Oscar for Best Actor for his performance in Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. The Cork-born actor is a first-time Oscar nominee. Poor Things, produced by Dublin-based Element Pictures, has received 11 nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress and Best Cinematography for Dubliner Robbie Ryan. In Cork, they are particularly proud. Now, hello, William Wall. As Killian Murphy's former teacher, William Wall, told Ray Darcy. Hello Ray, how are yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. We spoke to you back when your former pupil Killian Murphy won a Golden Globe. Today we're speaking to you on the day of his nomination for an Oscar and let's hope that we will have the third one when he wins an Oscar. How do you feel today? Crossed. I feel great, I feel fantastic. It's, Cork is celebrating quietly here. It's not so much that we, we sort of uh, are shocked by it. We kind of feel both we and Killian deserved an Oscar years ago, you know. And you, your wife, used to run a sort of a, a drama programme in the school. Killian was involved in that. Like, was it obvious from the start or was it not that he was going to be this great? Uh, no. You no. Know, yeah. I mean, anybody who says they could see that at uh, <laughs> 17 years of age, I think, is probably lying, you know. Yeah. But you could, see, you could see his talent. I mean, his talent was, was amazing even then. Now, when these big announcements are made, newsrooms across the country go hunting. Can we find a family member, a friend, a relative to give their reaction? And for our friends over on Radio Nagoya they landed a scoop. Killian Murphy's dad, Brendan, or Brendan as he's also known, is a Gaelgor. And he gave his rather bemused reaction to all this hype about the Oscar nominations to their midday show on Salo Yas, presented by Helen e. Hay on Wednesday. And even if you can't speak a word of Irish, I think you'll get the gist of Helen's opening question. Will in Hollywood? Hollywood. And then Brendan replies, and in true dad mode, he tells Helen that they have four children who are equally important to them all. And while they were very happy about the nomination, he clearly thinks the hype is a bit unnecessary. The focus, he says, should be on the work. Like Tony Mann, on the Rafa Lisha Rod Fabahar, Agastashish in Gabriel, Nihiran Skilk, 
fade ringto kigulimit amahaster fadlish ta kar gunagas hagahin dinuko kortaft glishe danele tasugot nagas dimuglelike lugas vi kopanti gunagas hanigonskielugasimaranhaster more dads and sons too this time with another man who's enjoying many acting accolades as well as Paul Meskel joined Miriam on Sunday. But what we really want to know, did Paul Meskel's dad really dance with Sher? You told a great story about your dad at the Oscars. He's going around telling people he danced with Cher. What's the story? If my dad was telling you the story, he would say that he danced with Cher. I, being the objective source, will say that he danced in the proximity of Cher. And, and to be fair to him, it was... The proximity was right next to Cher. But just to set the record straight, he did not dance. It wasn't like he was, Cher was aware that my dad was dancing anywhere near her. And there's any remote notion that I'll ever get to go back to the Oscars, I'm sure he'll be there in a heartbeat. (laughs) I love the fact that your mum, Dervla, got really friendly with the person who was sitting beside her at the Oscars. Because I know when you take a break or you go to the loo, someone else goes into your seat, don't they? My mum would become very friendly with the waiter if she could. That's just the way it's the way that she is. And I know that sounds like a nice thing, but sometimes it can be incredibly uh, frustrating when you're trying to order food. But uh, she's one of those extraordinary people who just actually loves other human beings a lot. So she's almost as big as you are here and your sister Nell, of course. And I know a lot of our listeners will be wondering and want to know, how's your mom doing? She's doing really well. She's doing everything that she's supposed to be doing. And she is an extraordinary puts her head down and and does what she's told by doctors and as a family collectively incredibly proud of her and she definitely leads the charge for us all but look the fact that in a film with andrew scott and i really hope irish audiences go and see it especially the fact that it's two irish men playing in a queer story in ireland it does mean a lot to me and i think it's a testament to how far the country's come in regards to that social topic paul meskell there talking about his new movie with andrew scott all of us strangers, and it's clear that the bond he has with his parents is so strong. But how does that unique connection begin? Ask Rory Gleeson. He's a new dad. He wrote for Sunday Macell and he had something to say. No, he had something to shout out about his baby son, Tyg. I have seen my partner happier than I have ever seen her. We feel bound to each other now in a way we can't have ever been before. We've given each other a gift, an explosive well of frustration and love done a thing together that can't be undone, something that can never be changed. Before I became a father, I saw little point in my interacting with other children, and now, just a few days after, I still don't. I can tell you I have learned very little from my conversations with five-year-olds, and their thoughts are often disjointed, irrelevant, or vastly oversimplified. But I respect a parent's right to show me their child and boast of them, and to adore them publicly. It is their right And so too now it is mine. So I will sing across the airwaves of his arrival. It's not enough to just register the birth of a child with the relevant authorities, Camden Council, or with the GP. For I've brought a son of Erin into this world. Though we're over the sea, and he is a little Londoner by dint of being resident here, as far as I'm concerned he's simply a petite Irishman living in London. He is also un figlio dell'Italia, evidenced by the first part of his last name, and his mother's eyes so far. So notice now to all that he is Tyg, a name for me worth roaring to the nation and all its people, whether they care or not, because delight demands to be shared. 
an unequivocally brilliant, marvellous, ecstatic thing has occurred. And so, mark these words. Tyg, my darling boy is here. One of your nation's sons is here. Abroad, happy and screaming. He coughs and my heart plunges. When he screams me at wake at night, I dearly wish him gone. And then I'm shocked at my thoughts in the morning. When this dozing little charmer does all he can to fill my heart with something I can only describe as his name. Tyg. Welcome to the world, Tyg. All the better for having you in it. Another father and son appeared on the airwaves too this week as former footballing star Michael Owen and his courageous son, 17-year-old James, spoke to Shea Byrne on the 9 o'clock show. Over a little period of time, that's when we found out that actually he was struggling to see the, the board at school, struggling to see an awful lot of other things, and that's when, obviously, we started doing some investigation and found out that he, he had Stargardt's. The father and son duo were on to talk about their new documentary exploring the effects of James's degenerative eye condition called Stargardt disease. They spoke very honestly to Shay about the life-changing impacts that the diagnosis has had and how James has had to let football dreams slide. Speaking to you as a, as a dad, Michael, um, obviously James decided to give up football, which was a difficult decision for him and I'm sure for you to see him not playing the game that he loved. Yeah, in a way it was. I'm Obviously James... And like with a lot of kids, really, if if they if they can't do something well or they're not enjoying it or, or whatever it might be, a lot of these things don't happen to a process. So when James was really young, I you know said to my dad, I said to my wife, this kid's got some real ability. He could be a footballer one day. Uh, he had a great touch and he was really well balanced and quick and beat people and he was just you know really showing promise. But he was doing a lot of things in the game where I just couldn't understand why he'd be standing in a certain position and not shuffling over when a ball moved. I kept saying to him like, well, you know, when the ball goes over to the right back, why don't you do this and why don't you do that? And he, he was always desperate to to learn and desperate to to try and but he just wasn't grasping it. We've only got one phone between you. Things are bad. Did you pass the yeah, phone back to James? Yeah, I'll pass you back on. <laughs> Hello, James. Hello. <laughs> How are you? So, James, obviously, we were talking to your dad there about your footballing career, and obviously, I mentioned that the pressure that you'd be under with your dad being Michael Owen, that, you know, you should be become a footballer. And we've seen that with other uh, families of footballers as well. He did hugely enjoy playing futsal for the programme, a version of football for partially sighted players. I never heard of it until the documentary approached it's five aside. The goalkeeper can be completely fully sighted, but it can't leave the D. It's fast pace, and the ball is it's a ball. It's slightly heavier, so it doesn't bounce as high. And um, I had no idea like the standards will be so good. And I um, I played for him, yeah. And um, hopefully this isn't a spoiler, but I scored in the documentary. So <laughs> it's not a spoiler, man. If you've scored a goal in the match, no matter what match it is, you got to say you scored it. So low, I'm delighted to hear that you, that you scored. Hey, all right. Yeah, we've had a, an amazing time following the the uh, the England team into the World Cup. There was a home World Cup actually, which features in the documentary, and the skill levels were actually incredible as James said um, people would say or think partially sighted people playing a slightly different game of football but you know a, a Premier League player would, would not struggle but they would be right at the top of their concentration levels to compete with these guys I mean it's seriously high standard stuff And on Wednesday Les Martin is here now Les people might have heard you speak before about the sad loss of your son Cahill to MLD so today is a big day for, for you and for families like you Les joined Clarence Studio to react to the news that after many years of advocacy Lib Meldi, the most expensive drug in the world, has been approved to treat MLD here. 
MLD is a rare and life-threatening inherited disease which affects the metabolic system in children. And he spoke to Claire about his two beautiful sons who'd been diagnosed. I'm very glad today. Uh, this is a huge piece of news. The MLD community, I suppose, work together and putting forward the patient's voice and the family's voice mm-hmm. into these discussions in the hope that humanity and sense prevails. And I, I'm delighted to hear this piece of news today. You've seen this drug working because you were part of it. You and your family were part of a trial. Yeah, so we're actually the only family who've ever received this treatment here in Ireland. Unfortunately, there are six or seven other families living in Ireland currently with the condition. So in our case, we had uh, two sons, our boy Cahill. He passed away now three years ago. He was six when he died. Luckily for Kieran, his brother sort of led the way. Kieran was only 11 months when Cahill was diagnosed, so we, they immediately checked Kieran as well. So Kieran immediately was eligible for this trial that we found out about in Italy, in Milan. We stayed there for almost nine months. It was just over a year when he received the therapy. So he has some nerve damage and he has some mild disability, but he's uh, stable and his prognosis is very good and he's so happy and healthy and going Mm -hmm. to school and we're so grateful. Is Um, it a tough treatment for the child to go through? Yeah, dose of a a little size of a little tea bag. First of all, they have to go through a kind of a chemotherapy process. They have to break down the immune system. So that was the most difficult part. And then... We were in Milan for that and we were in an isolation room in the hospital there for months. Cahill was very ill and myself and my wife alternated between the two, one in a hotel room in uh, Milan with our daughter Holly and the other looking after Kieran. But what they do is they extract stem cells from the bone marrow. It's a genetic engineering process. They introduce a piece of genetic code into those cells and then they reintroduce them to the body and that enzyme that they were missing. Just a single enzyme of one of thousands. Mm. When it's not there, this disease suddenly progresses. It generates that enzyme. Okay. And the child, you know, grows up from there on. To be given in a terminal diagnosis for two of your boys on the same day, that glimmer of hope that we might be able to save one, well, that was enough for me and Linda to, to go first and... When you're telling me that he's great, I'm just thinking about Cahill all the time and I'm thinking about Holly and Linda and yourself and what your life has been like. I mean... No, it's been an extremely difficult couple of years. You know, I wouldn't like to paint too sad a picture. We're very happy now and it's we have a normal life and mm. we're very grateful for what we have because of this therapy. But uh, there's no doubt it was a tough couple of years. Back on Saturday morning on Brendan O'Connor, there was more Turn That Radio Up kind of broadcasting. But a bit of breaking news for you now, an exclusive. As Brendan gleefully announced. The feverish speculation is at an end. The new host of the nine o'clock slot on RTE Radio 1 is sitting across from me. And it is dot 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 Oliver Callan. Good morning. Good morning, Brendan. Thank you very much. He had the news that Oliver Callan is the new permanent host of the nine o'clock show here on Radio 1 Mondays to Friday. I feel great. I hope it's not too much of a shock for people. <laughs> Very excited about it, no, because I'm a real radio anorak and this is the coveted slot. He is clearly delighted with this. So did you have to kind of keep this secret? <laughs> yeah, did, yeah, like, yeah, it was really When weird. did you tell your parents? Oh, only just this week. My family only found out this morning. I kept it yeah. very tight. In fact, myself and the husband, Mr. Lannan, we went through a few Christmas dinners <laughs> where people are speculating. Who's going to replace your yeah. man? Like, your so parents no, are probably glad you have a proper job. Now <laughs> yeah, probably will. Yeah. Establishment radio station, etc. He's in from Monaghan, so nobody gets very excited about anything. Yeah, okay, so it's like, all right, yeah. that's what you're doing. Grand. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know what yeah. you're doing next. Yeah. Money chat came up too. 
How could it not these days here? And Oliver was quick to point out that. I might as well get it out of the way because people will ask about money and so on given the circumstances. So it's a two-year contract. So it's 150 a year for those two years. And uh, like it wouldn't put me in the top 10 presenters at the moment. But, you know, we're in a whole new world. And I didn't negotiate on the money. There was no negotiation on it because there's a pile of people who want to do the job. But it probably will be at some point in the future. Okay. So, um, so you were just told this is what's on offer. Take exactly. it or leave it. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of asked, can we discuss this, this and this? And it was generally no. You're in a new world now. Okay. So um, sorry to break the bad news there, Brendan. Good okay. luck. <laughs> Best of luck. <laughs> <laughs> Oliver, I think uh, it, it looks like you're a very popular choice for this. There is a lot of warmth coming in on the text for you anyway. Delighted to hear Oliver Callum will be back on Morning Radio. Best of luck to Oliver. Thank you, RT. You've made a very happy woman. That's from and delighted to hear Oliver's going to be back to, and, and so on and so on. And again, congratulations and the best of luck and delighted for you. But as we line up to welcome a new host of the airwaves here at Radio 1 HQ, we're also saying goodbye. As the news broke on Wednesday, that Brian Dobson will be retiring from RT News after 37, as he described himself, fantastic years. Shun Lee Rahali, Chair of the RT Board, thanks very much can, for talking to us. Oh, I, sorry, do you want to say one more thing? Would you mind if I said something, Brian? Yeah. I just want to say best of luck on retirement. I've been listening to you for a long time and, you know, public service broadcasting to your fingertips, so thank you for that. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you indeed, Chair. Uh, thank you. You can almost see the blushes there on the airwaves. And while Brian Dobson's personal news broke on Wednesday, it was funny then to think that he'd interviewed another celebrated public figure on Monday as he faced into his final speech in the Shannon before retirement, Senator David Norris. Dignity and freedom and tolerance, liberty, fraternity, egalite. <laughs> then Senator Norris spoke to Brian on the news at one. In the 1960s, sexuality was hardly talked about at all. As a result of the law cases, the whole subject was on the front page day after day after day. And that's exactly what I was looking for. Who are your own political and indeed other heroes? Well, of course, my wonderful friend, the late Dr. Noel Brown. He was very significant. And then there was the Dean of St. Patrick's, who was a great friend, Victor Griffin. They were very progressive people. Senator David Norris. Arash, again, couple of nomads. Arash, now you've a busy few weeks ahead of you reading and listening, of course, as you get to grips with the two referendums being put before the people on March the 8th. But how will you find out more about them? Well, there might be a roadshow near you, as the Electoral Commission takes to the highways and byways. The chair of the Electoral Commission is visiting workers at the factory to explain details of the two referendums in March. Kian McCormack was at Newbridge Silverware with Supreme Court Judge Justice Baker was explaining the details, while in return they gave her a masterclass in their craft. It's literally putting the pattern on the handle of the spoon or fork. It's nice, you were the first people out of Dublin to see them. We launched them this morning at 8 o'clock. Miss Justice Baker continues to meet factory workers. Martin Kennedy has some questions. I'm a little bit mixed up about is, are they trying to move the word mother out of uh, the Constitution or...? The uh, word woman will appear still in the Constitution. The word mother won't. But the word mother has such a long history in our law. Fundamental relationship between mother and child isn't changing in our law. And as the impact of misinformation and disinformation on our electoral processes across the world is a growing concern, 
Justin McCarthy on This Week had this to say. Now, a lie, they say, can travel halfway around the world before the truth even has its boots on. Well, with two referendums, as well as local and European elections happening in Ireland this year and a general election on the horizon, the threat posed by the spread of false information online has never been higher. The new Electoral Commission here is considering following Australia's lead in setting up a register of disinformation, which aims to debunk commonly spread falsehoods about the electoral process. He dug all the way to Australia to hear about their approach. Well, I've been speaking with Tom Rogers. He is Australia's electoral commissioner. And I asked him to explain what Australia's disinformation register is and how it works. Disinformation register is one part of what we call our reputation management strategy. And it's where we put online things that we think are false, deliberately misleading about the process of voting. I need to be very clear here, Justin, that we don't censor anybody. We're not the arbiters of truth. As you know, any election or referendum is a contest of ideas, but it's our job to defend the process. So can you give me an example then of the the type of thing that would appear on your register? For example, the Australian Electoral Commission urges you to use pencils so that they can erase your ballot through to, for example, the 2022 election, there was a a fake uh, story about a large number of discarded ballot papers being found in a bin in an Australian town, many things like that. At the same time, I might just point out, we've run a very large national campaign that is designed to make people think about the source of the information they're consuming. It's called Stop and Consider, very cost-effective. And it really is helping people change the way they consume their information as well. We've also established a thing called AECTV, which is effectively a collection of about 200 YouTube videos. Whenever someone does say something wrong about the voting process, not only do we put it on the disinformation register, frequently we'll develop a quick two-minute video and put that up. Uh, to explain the process as well. Okay. And if false information which appears on your register then continues to circulate, is there anything you can do about that? I mean, do you make contact with the social media companies and ask them to take it down? That's a developing area. The last couple of years, we've noticed a decrease in the willingness of the social media companies to remove content. I think there's been a sort of a global disinvestment by the social media companies in their fact-checking teams but we still maintain very close contact with them. Before the 2022 election, we had many of them sign a social media protocol, but a lot of that is voluntary and relies on the relationships between the AEC, my body, uh, and those social media companies. I would say they've actually been generally okay at removing the stuff that we point out. We're very cautious, again, because I don't want the Electoral Commission to be criticised for censorship because it's not our role. Um, And so we really do try and focus narrowly on the process. How much of a problem is it? And I mean, would you categorise it as a real threat to democracy? Justin, it's an incredibly big threat to global democracy. It is absolutely on the rise and it's deeply concerning. Sobering stuff. Meanwhile... Today, the government launched its fourth National Biodiversity Action Plan since 2002 with the goal of protecting Irish national habitats and native plant and wildlife species. 
Sarah McInerney got the details on Thursday's drive time. With us now on the line is Niall O'Donoghue, who is Director General of the National Parks and Wildlife Service. And you're very welcome, Niall, to the programme. This is the first one that's backed by legislation. So can you talk us through what exactly that means? First and foremost, as you said, the plan is, is statutory. And this piece of legislation was vital for the National Biodiversity Action Plan because for the first time it makes it mandatory for a minister to publish one. And this necessarily involves a decision to publish at Cabinet and brings with it the need to keep Cabinet-informed progress on implementation. And while it can be easy to be glum about it sometimes, just think about the passion of the people who have dedicated their working lives to protecting our natural world. My work is um, governed by the seasons and no two days are typical. This is Mary Sheehan, District Conservation Officer at Killarney National Park. And here she's describing her day at the office. To Clareburn on Thursday. A more typical day, say last week uh, during the really cold weather, one frosty morning I put on my uh, caving suit and helmet and crawled into a cave to monitor under licence a population of lesser, lesser horseshoe bats. So well, you, do, you went into the cave, you're all suited up. Are you going in to, to count them, is it? That's exactly it, Claire. And I suppose it's a, it's a, both a weird and wonderful experience. You crawl into the cave, flooded, and um, you're looking at the reflections of the water up in the cave ceiling. And here we have these bats just dangling like little plums. Then we're also involved in making observations so as to ensure that we feed this back into a national programme and help improve their habitat or their roosting location. Okay, and After that, yeah. then I took off the caving uh, suit and jumped onto a rib with a life jacket and my colleague and we went up to another remote area of the park to do some rhododendron control. All members of Clarion National Park staff were involved in that along with volunteers and also contractors. Okay. On Morning Ireland, more passionate words too, as Neil O'Donoghue was on that show as well. Gardaí in Newcastle West and County Limerick are appealing for witnesses to come forward. But this time he was talking about the grim problem with badger baiting. Badger baiting is a, a practice where uh, holes are dug close to badger sets uh, to get the badger out of the set, to capture it and basically to, be, to use the badger or badgers in fights with dogs. So it is a harmful and serious offence under the Wildlife Act. Badgers are protected species. And any associated activity with that disturbance or capture of a protected mammal and its persecution uh, in such activities as badger baiting is strictly illegal. And I have to say, it's also... It's not good for the dogs either. So you've you've a series of, of things here, and what we're calling for here is is the public to come forward with any information. This is heinous. It's the only way to describe it. It is absolutely barbaric. And, and people would be standing is, around watching this and placing bets, would they? No doubt, it is indescribable. It's cruelty to both wild animal, a protected animal, and indeed to the dog. Mooney Goes Wild on Monday nights has, of course, been banging this drum about the magic of the natural world for years. And this week again, they brought the natural world to life for us. The show is full of gems like this one from Terry Flanagan. There are eight billion people on Earth and this was a statistic that blew me away years ago. And this will make you spill your latte a bit. For every human on Earth, there are more than one billion insects. One billion insects. The total weight of all the insects on Earth is about 70 times the weight of all humans on Earth. So, you know, they're there. 
They're full of protein. And it's not as if we're not eating them. In more than 130 countries around the world, people are deliberately eating insects. And it's going back thousands and thousands of years ago. You remember in, in, in the desert, John the Baptist, when he crossed the desert, he fed on locusts and, and wild honey. And wild honey. And I know that in a few hours' time, the main thing you'll remember from this programme is for every human on Earth... There are more than one billion insects. Yep. Also, on that show, reinforcing the power of nature in our lives. Now, we have a lovely report from Michelle Brown now. She visited the Marymount Hospital and Hospice in Cork. Michelle Brown visited the gardens founded by the Friends of Leukaemia charity. While she was there, she spoke to Betty Penny, whose daughter Sonia Lynch sadly died last August. The gardens are fantastic for people that are suffering because there's something in the... When you're close to the earth, you're close to nature. Nature does speak to you and we're all too busy, that's what happens. It's only when you get sick and you stop on your tracks that you realise there's a lot more to life, isn't there? I mean, it's a beautiful life. It is a beautiful life. That's Betty Penny, mother of Sonia Lynch, who passed away recently in Marymount Hospice in Cork. Sonia had previously worked for many years as a paediatric nurse in the Mercy Hospital, as well as a community nurse for the Mary Keating Foundation. She married John Lynch, who was a beautiful husband. She has three children. They're a lovely family. She got sick nine years ago. A beautiful person in every way. I asked Betty if the gardens at Marymount gave them comfort. Yes, she, they did, definitely did. Myself and Sonia were looking out at the rabbits and we were watching them for a good half an hour. It was beautiful, like the robins. And they'll always say a robin only comes where there's peace. They were on, jumping on the chair behind us. So it, it was beautiful. We went out in the garden a few times and she loved it. And to end, another powerful voice. Although, as you will hear, life here too has delivered a real sucker punch. Hello and welcome to our second live show from this year's Tradfest. Oh yes. We are here once again in the conference centre in Dublin and true legends of the music scene will share this stage with me this evening. I feel overwhelmed by it all. This week Arena visited Tradfest and met singer-songwriter Janice Ian. They are nearly as excited as I am, Janice. It is a total honour to be sitting on a stage. Thank you, Sean. Opposite you and your guitar. And my guitar. She described the shocking impact that a life-changing diagnosis has had on her as she's had to abruptly call a halt to the singer part of her career. But she will continue to write. You know, I was, I was trying to think of that moment when you heard, Janice, I'm afraid your vocal cords are in the state now. You, you're not going to be able to sing anymore. Yeah. I got some weird virus that was not COVID. And then one night I woke up and I felt like my throat had exploded. It was finally Joan Baez, her doctor, recommended a specialist in my area. And she showed me that I had scarring on my vocal cord. And I said, if I work really hard, I'll sound like myself, right? And they were honest. And they said, no, you'll never sound like yourself again. I've sung since I can remember. I I remember being two or three and sitting on my father's knee and singing. Then I started to play guitar. And then I started to write. So I've been a writer since I was 12. I've been a guitarist since I was 10. It's all so intertwined that I don't know what's going to happen. And tomorrow night in a sold out gig, some lucky people at the National Stadium will hear singers from Mary Black to Wallace Bird celebrating Janice's music. And while she won't be singing herself, she's delighted to be there. And she thanks Dubliner Aoife Scott for organising the tribute. As a real treat, Aoife sang Janice Ian's most loved song, Alive. And I know that there are many of us who know every word. And I learned 
the truth at seventeen That love was meant for beauty queens And high school girls with clear skin smiles Who married young and then retired So we will leave you with that this morning. Mila Boychus, a Sochta Eichterklin. Until next time, Sloan Gafu. Valentines I never knew The Friday night charades of youth Were spent on one more beautiful At 17 I learned the truth And those of us with ravaged faces Lacking in the social graces Desperately remained at home Inventing lovers on the phone Who called to say come dance with me And murmured vague obscenities It isn't all it seems At seventeen